I'm going to try standing out here this morning so that I'm not quite as hidden behind all of the trees, or at least I don't feel as hidden behind all of the trees. Would you pray with me as we come to God's word? God and Father, I just pray as we are attentive to your word that you would teach us to be people who place our faith in you. A call that sounds so simple but is in truth so messy. Pray that you would be all of us with all of us sinners as we seek to do this. Be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach your word. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, the author Donald Miller, in his best-selling spiritual memoir, Blue Like Jazz, that came out like 15 years ago, he starts the whole book with this author's note, where he says this. He says, I never liked jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. But I was outside the Baghdad Theater in Portland one night when I saw a man playing the saxophone. I stood there for 15 minutes, and he never opened his eyes. After that, I liked jazz music. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It is as if they are showing you the way. Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. I was thinking about that and thinking about this text and about the Bible. And I was reflecting on just this question of like, how, how do you think about the Bible, right? The, the Bible as a whole. I mean, some, I think some of us think about it or are taught to think about it like it's a theology textbook, that it's a bunch of like facts and ideas about God. And some of us think about it like it's a moral handbook, that it's a set of rules and commandments. And some of us treat it like it's a guidebook, that it's sort of a bunch of recommendations on living a good or full life. And some of us treat it kind of like it's an inspirational book, a kind of pick-me-up self-help manual full of encouraging sayings. How do you think about what the Bible is? Well, so here's the thing. All of those things are a little bit true, right? There are points in the Bible that are all of the things that I just listed. Things about theology and things about morality and things that do offer wisdom for life and things that do encourage us in the midst of our difficulties. But I don't think the Bible is really any of those things. And the reason for that is if you just sit down and read through the Bible, the great bulk of it isn't any of that, but instead it's a bunch of stories, And not stories like fables, right? Not like once there was a greedy fox and he did these things and then there's a simple moral at the end like you shouldn't be like the greedy fox. But stories about people and groups of people with all the messiness that that involves, right? Stories about history and about kingdoms and individuals and their good choices and their bad choices. The Bible is a book of stories about people. But here's what's key about that to understanding the Bible. There are stories about people in relationship with the living God. God is a character in these stories too, just like the human beings are. And I think really the key to thinking about what the Bible is as a whole is that it is um, this book through which by watching these people live in relationship with the living God, we come to understand who God is and how our relationship with him works as well. Just to say, sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. And that is part of how Abraham is functioning for Paul here in Romans 4. On one level, Paul is just using Abraham to kind of prove a point, right? The point that we are all justified by faith, because even Abraham was. And we talked about that last week. But on another level, 
Paul is really trying to, to take Abraham as an example, a picture of what faith looks like lived out in relationship with God. What faith in God looks like. That by watching Abraham have faith, it's supposed to teach us about what faith looks like for us. So here's what I want us to do this morning with this text. I want us to just spend some time examining Abraham and his faith, watching him believe, and see if that helps us figure out how to believe for ourselves. So here's how we're going to do it. First, I just want us to ask, what is Abraham's faith like? He has it, and Paul's, we discussed that last week, but what does it look like? And before we answer that specifically, it's worth saying a word or two about what that word, faith, means. Because I think in our world, we almost always, or at least people in our world, almost always give it the wrong definition. If I had to summarize like what I think the average person on the street would say, if you ask them, what is faith? It would be some version of faith is believing something without proof. It's believing something without proof. Or a lot of people, I think, in our world might even say it's believing something in spite of the proof, in spite of all of the evidence you're choosing to believe it. And um, that's not what faith means in the Bible. (laughs) And here's how I know that. because So in the Old Testament, for example, you see Israel regularly called to have faith in God. They're called to trust in God and believe in him. And they're called to that, and then God comes and he gives them reasons. That's how every prophet basically works. He says, have faith in me, trust in me. Didn't I lead you out of Egypt? Didn't I part the Red Sea for you? Haven't you seen the mighty works I've done among the nations? Don't I dwell in your midst in the temple? See all these things, and therefore have faith in me. God's calling Israel to believe, and then he's giving them reasons that they should believe. And the same thing's true in the New Testament. You think about, like, like, doubting Thomas, right, who we like to knock. But Thomas was one of the disciples, and he hears that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he doesn't believe it. He says he can't believe it unless Jesus shows up and lets him put his hands into his hands and into his side, right? That's what Thomas does. But what's important is that the Bible does not say, well, poor Thomas, then. He wanted proof, and since there is no proof, and he's just supposed to believe in spite of that, it's too bad for him, isn't it? That's not what happens. Instead, what happens is this from John 20. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hand. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Put your hand in my side. Stop doubting and believe. There's reason to believe, Jesus says, Now have faith. So faith cannot mean just believing in fairy tales or believing in spite of the evidence. Now that doesn't mean that all of us get the same level of proof that Thomas gets, right? Like we don't all get to sit down with the physical Jesus and stick our hands in his side. But the reason that it's important to recognize that is because that idea leads us in the wrong direction. Instead, here simply is the biblical direction for what faith is. Faith in scripture, is trusting belief. It's not about proof or evidence or something like that, or the lack thereof. It's about trust. Faith is trusting belief. Which is to say, there are beliefs that I have, that I believe, but that don't really require any trust, right? Like, I can say there are trees outside of that window over there, and I believe that to be true, but I'm not really trusting. I can tell you that James K. Polk was the 11th president of the United States, and I believe that's true, But it doesn't really cost me anything. It doesn't take any work for me to trust in that. But there are lots of beliefs that I have 
that do require trust. So like, like for example, have you ever gone rock climbing? And I, I mean, maybe you've done like real rock climbing, in which case tell me about it because I'll be suitably impressed. But I mean, even like at the University of Nebraska where Elizabeth and I went to college, they had this, this rock climbing wall, right? And it's, not, it's like 30 or 35 feet tall. But they, they bring you up to the wall and they put this harness on you and they strap it up and it's connected to this rope. And you, they tell you, okay, like you can climb the wall and if you fall, you're going to be fine because the harness is just going to catch you, right? And that's, I believe that to be true, right? If I consider the evidence and the lack of like lawsuits I'm aware of against the university, I assume that that's true. But, you know, my first time climbing up that climbing wall, you get about 10 feet up that thing. And then you stop and you look down and, you know, you're, at least for me, maybe none of you would have this experience, but your hands start to get sweaty and your heartbeat starts to speed up and you think like, I could fall and I could really hurt myself. And you know that you've got that harness on, but there's a difference between the belief I had standing at the foot of the wall in that harness and the belief I'm now being asked to have because that belief I'm now being asked to have requires trust. It requires trusting belief. And that is what faith is. So what makes Abraham's faith remarkable was the depth of the trust that he has in God. So we read in verse 18 of our passage, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. That so shall your offspring be is this reference to this point in Genesis where God takes Abraham and tells him to look up at all the stars in the heavens and says, that's what your offspring, your children and grandchildren and descendants are going to be like. And there's a problem with that. And Paul reminds us of it in verse 19. Without weakening in Abraham's faith, Abraham faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead. Which is to say that God takes Abraham out and gives, shows him the stars and gives him this promise. But Abraham is not exactly a prime childbearing age anymore. He's in his 90s. And he and his wife have struggled with infertility for their entire lives. And I know some of you, have, you know, have walked through that struggle just for a few years. And you think about how hard it is to hope. And imagine in your 90s how hard it must be to believe when God gives you that kind of promise. So imagine... How crazy, in a sense, that promise sounds, that your nation, or that your offspring will be like the stars. But, Paul tells us, Abraham faced that reality without weakening in his faith. So Abraham isn't in denial about the facts. He's not ignoring the fact that he's old and the fact that this all seems so unlikely. But, as verse 20 says, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith, and gave glory to God. So just to say, just to stress what we said earlier, this isn't about Abraham buying a fairy tale, right? It isn't like Abraham just woke up one morning and said, I'm going to have a bunch of kids and just really choose to believe that. God comes to him and tells him this is going to happen, right? Physically appears to him, gives him this promise. So Abraham has reason to believe in it, but this is still hard to believe, hard in here, right? Hard for your heart. Hard for your emotions. Because if God doesn't show up and do this thing, there is no way that it's going to happen. Faith for Abraham is that call to trust in God. It's a trusting belief in God. Now in just a minute we're going to address what I think is the obvious question that I feel when I say that, which is, okay, so how do I get faith like that? (laughs) But um, 
But first, one important clarification. When we talk about faith like that, I think sometimes some of us can get confused or struggle a little bit because there's two different things that we can talk about. We talk about being saved by faith. That's something that Paul's been addressing in the last few chapters of Romans. We are saved by faith, um, not by earning our salvation, but by trusting in God to provide our salvation as a gift. But we're also, as Christians, called to, to seek after faith, to grow in our faith, and to have more of it. And we can hear about this great faith of Abraham and wonder... I don't have faith that is that trusting. So what does that say about my salvation? What does that do? What what does that say about saving faith, right? And answer that, there is an important distinction we need to have in everything that we're saying this morning between the presence of faith and the strength of faith. A distinction between the presence of faith and the strength of faith. The question for your salvation is just this question of faith's presence, right? Do you have it or not? Even if it's just the tiny beginnings of it, even if it's just a mustard seed, right? Jesus pictures it as. If you have that at that simplest, most basic level, if you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation just in that way, then you have saving faith. But faith is also something that we're called to grow up in. We can both have it and lack it in the same moment, there's this, this scene I love in Mark's gospel where this father brings his demon-possessed son to Jesus and he asks Jesus if he can heal the boy. And Jesus, in Mark 9, 23, says, If you can, said Jesus, everything's possible for one who believes. And then this is the man's response. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus heals the boy. But I know of no better articulation of how I often feel about faith and how it often works for all of us. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe, but there's all this stuff that I'm busy with, and I don't know that I really trust God enough to take care of it. And so instead of spending time with him and seeking him in prayer, I just get busy, busy trying to take care of business. I do believe... Sin looks enticing. Sometimes it's hard to trust that God's ways are actually best. Um, And so instead of trusting him, I start chasing after those things, even though I know they won't satisfy me. I do believe, but life is just scary and hard. We had a CT scan for Elizabeth on Friday, and we're waiting to hear the results, which I guess was an appropriate time for me to have to preach on faith. But... um, But the results of whether we're in the clear or cancer is back. And there's that churning question in my heart, right? Of can I trust God with this? Can I trust him regardless of the outcome? We are people saved by faith. But faith is also something that all of us are constantly having to pursue. If we are to follow Abraham's example, that means that we need to seek to have that kind of deep and trusting faith like Abraham. So that's our calling, but how do we do that? How do we get there? And the answer to that second question is in recognizing the things that Abraham is putting his faith in. The key to Abraham's faith and its strength is not something about Abraham, not that he's just got like grit and gumption and determination. The key to understanding Abraham's faith is to recognize that it comes, its strength comes from the things that he's putting his faith in. So what are those things? Well, first, Abraham teaches us that we should trust in God's power. 
We should have faith in God's power. So Paul is talking about Abraham being the father of us all. And in verse 17, he says this. He says, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. And then this is the key, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So Abraham, he's talking about Abraham's faith in God's promises. And he says, you know, he talks about this God in whom he's believed. But then Paul pauses because he thinks it's important to say, and this is that God that Abraham's believing in, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So Paul's saying that this is how it worked for Abraham. He recognizes God's power in the world. God speaks and things spring into being. God says stars and there are stars in the sky. God says trees and green shoots start to grow up from the dead ground. God calls into being things that are not and gives life to things that are dead. And so now God tells Abraham that he's going to have a child. And that is hard to believe. But Abraham looks up at the stars and he looks around at the trees and he reminds himself that as hard as it is to believe, God had the power to do all of that. And that's the first part of how Abraham's faith is able to be strong in this as well. Whereas verse 20, verse 20 says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. So how? How is he not wavering? How is he being strengthened? Then in verse 21, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Abraham knew that God was strong enough. He could do what he promised, and this helped strengthen Abraham's faith. I think it is worth from time to time just stopping and reflecting on the power of our God. So here's just one, 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 what, this is what I was thinking about this week because, because this set was up and VBS is all about inner, like outer space stuff and I'm a nerd. So I, I was reading the other day about black holes, all right? There's these things called black holes. Here is an image of one in outer space. And so black holes, there's, there's stars like our sun, but that are like a thousand times bigger than our sun, right? And some of those stars die, and so they start to collapse down inward, and then they get denser, which causes them to have more gravity, and so they collapse more, and they get, don't worry too much about this, but denser and more gravity. And they collapse inward and inward and inward until they're these tiny, supermassive little things. Um, that's what a black hole is. And it has an unbelievable amount of strength, of gravity, It's so strong that not even light can escape it, which is theoretical. So let me put it this way. Here's another picture of a black hole, right? Um, If you got close to it, you wouldn't actually want to be this close to any of these black holes, obviously. But but there's this this disc around it, right? This ring um, of stuff. And we see that and we think that kind of looks pretty. But what that is, is the shredded remains of stars and planets, all right? Spiraling downward, like whole solar systems torn into dust are spiraling downward into this thing. It... Black holes are like monsters that eat suns for breakfast, right? And to God, that's not a big deal. Those are like, those are like pimples that he pops in the mirror in the morning <laughs> looking at it, all right? That, like, they're footnotes in creation to our God. As an afterthought, he creates powerful monsters that eat stars in space, all right? That's the kind of power that we're dealing with when we're dealing with God. So if that's true, why are we so set on trying to do it ourselves and so, um, so put so much trust in ourselves and so little in God's strength, right? 
So that's the first part of having faith like Abraham's. Reminding ourselves that God is strong enough to be trusted. One particular way I think that that meets me. Something to think about. Um, That means that in order to have faith, I have to be reminded of those realities. That they're true. Sometimes when I come to worship, right, like this morning, there's things going on and churning in my heart, and I struggle to, to, to enter into worship, struggle to approach God, because I feel like it's inauthentic, right? Like I'm not in that place of faith in God, so maybe I shouldn't be spending this time worshiping him. But that's actually getting things backwards, because worship is actually necessary to feed our faith in God. Worshiping God is not primarily about me about me being authentically really feeling it or something. In worship, we are coming to God and beholding him as he is. We are saying and hearing and singing and praying true things about God, and those truths are meant to speak to our heart and remind us of the truth of God's goodness and greatness, which means that worship is actually meant to be formative to our faith. It's meant to help us have it. And so rather than staying away from God because we are struggling to trust him, one of the most important things we can do for our faith is that when we are struggling to have faith and struggling to trust God, we need to seek to enter in to his presence. We need to seek to be thinking about him and meditating on him and praising him because that actually strengthens our faith. Often when my faith is weakest, it's actually because I haven't been doing that because I've been focusing so much on the surrounding circumstances and my worries and the stuff going on in life that God's just kind of disappeared over the horizon and I haven't seen him at all. And is it any wonder then that my faith starts to falter? All right, so the first, the first thing Abraham's trusting in and the first thing we need to trust in is God's power. But that in itself isn't enough, right? It is important that God is strong enough to do what he's promised. But um, if power itself made you trustworthy, then politicians and CEOs would all be wonderful people, right? We, we recognize that there's more to trusting someone than just that they have power. So we need God to be strong enough to trust in him, but we also need to know what he's like. And Abraham shows us that as well. In the first place, Paul says, it's not just God's power, but Abraham also places his trust in God's promises. We are to trust in God's promises. So if you look back at verse 20 and 21, it says, Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Abraham's persuaded not just that God is powerful in the abstract, but that God has the power to do what he has promised. The Christian God is a promise-making God all through the Bible. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but from the very beginning, he comes to people and he gives them promises. Adam and Eve gives them promises. Promises to Abraham, like Paul says here, promises to Moses and David, promises to us. Some of those promises are really big and kind of shape the whole story of the Bible, and we actually call those promises covenants, if you ever see that word pop up in the Bible, because it's all over. They're covenants. God comes to Abraham and says, this is my covenant with you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. And there's other promises that are smaller in Scripture, more specific or more daily. But faith, 
for us is really about trusting in those promises. So in verse 13, Paul's talking about the law, but he says this. He says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Which is to say that what faith is about is that promise. For if those who depend on law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless. And then in verse 16, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. When we talk about having faith as Christians, that's what we mean, in fact. Not just faith in the abstract, but faith in the promises of God. That's actually important, because in our world, we often think of faith as sort of just like good in theory, right? We talk about just like, you just got to have faith. You just got to believe. But the question that I always want to have, ask when I hear that, is faith in what? Because it's not faith alone, right? But it's faith in God's promises that Scripture calls us to. Let me try to give a very honest example of that for a minute. And this one might be challenging for a few people. But like I said, because it's been on our mind, we had a CT scan on Friday for Elizabeth's cancer. We're six months out from the end of chemo. And there have been certain people in that, promise, in that process. Not, nobody here has done this, right? But certain people... So don't like look around and worry. But they've, they've said to her or said to me, well, you know, Elizabeth is this great lady. And so I just know that God will heal her. He can't possibly let her die. That's what I'm having faith in. And I hear that. And I want to say that's not actually how it works. As much as I would love that to be true, I know that that's not how it works because nowhere in the Bible does God promise that bad things don't happen to Christians, that they don't get cancer, or that they don't die, right? Thinking that that's actually a promise of God would be hugely, hugely problematic. But, um, but having faith in God doesn't change the reality that we have to confront those hard things. But... God has spoken promises, and it is through trusting in those promises that we can find real hope. Here's what God does promise, for example. He promises, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That God is working good for us and good for the world in the midst of this. Not that the thing is good, right? That's, that, that's not what that Bible verse says. The Bible, in fact, regards things like sickness and suffering and death as evil. But it says that God is at work even in the midst of the evil in this world. So that in the end, it will work for good. That evil's terrible, but that that's not the final word for us. And God promises as well. He says, do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God promises that he will be with us in the midst of our struggles, that when we feel like we can't take another step, God will give us strength, that even when we feel like we're falling, God will hold us up with his right hand. And he gives us the ultimate promise, though the mountains be shaken, And the hills be moved, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That no matter what happens in life, God's love is fixed on us. That he will carry us through it and carry us to himself. While the storms may rage and the flames may leap and our spirits may sag, that ultimately God will draw us to his chest 
and hold us and speak peace to us. So here's the thing about those promises. Those promises are not necessarily the promise that I would like, right? I would like that first promise that God doesn't ultimately give. But unlike those other promises, these are promises spoken to us by the living God. Those are not, the things we just read are not wishes that I'm making on a star. They're not fairy tales I'm choosing to tell myself to avoid looking at life's bleakness. That the being who is there and who spoke everything into existence has spoken those words to us. That he has promised those things to us. And we can trust in those promises because he's spoken them. And because he's proven himself trustworthy. Because that's really the last part of this thing. All right? Once we recognize God's power, and once we recognize the things that he's promised, that's the question that faith really comes down to. Can I trust all of that? And Paul reminds us that we can trust in God's proven love. We can trust in God's proven love. At the end of this discussion of Abraham, after noting the goodness of Abraham's faith, Paul says, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him are written not for him alone. So Abraham's faith, this is what he's been arguing along. It was credited to him as righteousness, but that's not just about Abraham. That's meant to teach us about faith. And then he goes on and says, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So Paul's talking about Abraham and his faith in God's great power and God's promises. But when he brings it all down to us, he reminds us that we have something even greater than Abraham. Look at how Paul describes God as he who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. This is the God at work in Jesus. Jesus, who was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. God proves himself trustworthy through the love that he shows in Jesus. Paul spells this out a little later in Romans. In Romans 8, he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? The key to trusting in God's love in the present is in recognizing God's love in the past, understanding and remembering the love God showed us in Jesus. This is one of the reasons that Christianity always comes back to the work of Christ and to the cross. Because at the cross, we have something more powerful than a suggestion of love or a discussion of love or some ideas about love. At the cross, what we have is God's demonstration of love. That's what's so radical and different about Christianity. It, every, other, every other religion in the world, right? Whether it's the Greek gods up on Mount Olympus or Allah or, the, or Hindu, the Hindu gods, however many there are, or Plato's kind of abstract deity, whatever. In every religion, we have this God who is only above us and so can only be known in principle. He's above us and can only be known in principle. And so we can struggle to trust in that kind of God, right? What have the gods to do with men, the philosophers ask? And the answer is nothing. You can't really get your head around them at all. 
Allah, if you read discussions within Islam, you can't, you can't trust him, really, right? Because, because he's so above it all that he's going to do as he pleases. And so you do the best you can and you hope that that's enough, but it's really going to be up to him in the end. We can feel that way about God as well. Feel like he's distant and unknowable because there's part of him that is. There's part of him that is above us, right? But the radical and different thing about Christianity is the argument that God isn't only above us, but he has also come into the midst of us. He's descended to be among us. He suffered and died as one of us and for us. And that means that unlike every other religion, we don't just have some principles that we want to believe about God. We have a demonstration of what God is like in Jesus giving himself up for us. And that demonstration is one of love. So look at Romans 8.32 again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's where we ultimately find hope. There's no suffering that God himself wasn't willing to face with us and for us. Pain, loss, and betrayal, and death are all things that God subjected himself to in Jesus. And that is the ultimate source of our faith. That's where it stems from. That recognition that God doesn't just say that he loves us. Say that he will provide and sustain us. Say that he will work things for good. But the fact that God himself bled and died to prove it is trustworthy. That is the soil of God's faithful love. Watered with the blood of Jesus. So how do you have faith like Abraham's? It's not through just trying to be like Abraham. It's by seeing Abraham's God. Because we share the same God that he has. A God who's powerful enough to meet all our needs. A God who has spoken to us in his promises, giving us things that we can fix our trust in. A God who's proven himself trustworthy through his dying love for us. Let us make that God our trust as well. Would you pray with me? Father, I give you praise for your greatness. I give thanks for your goodness and love. I pray that you would sustain me, sustain us as we seek to trust in you and walk into this week and into our lives. Pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, love made flesh. Amen. Would you stand with me now and sing God's praise?